and you'll take it to the book of Amos. The book of Amos. We are in a series this morning uh, that we're picking back up in called God in the Ruins. And we're looking at the uh, minor prophets in the Old Testament. These minor prophets, I want to remind you, do not have a minor message. They have a very important message. It's often lost because we don't talk much about them. We all favor guys like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. But these minor prophets, all those shorter books, demonstrate the fullness of God's prophetic word that, that, listen, sin has consequences, right? And sin has consequences, namely death. And if we do not repent and turn back to God through Christ, this side of the cross, then we too have the same consequences of doom and gloom that Assyria put on Israel and Babylon upon Judah. And so we're back into the series and we've, we've already looked at the first couple of our minor prophets. Today we're going to jump into the book of Amos and I call him a doomsday prophet. By the way, I will attempt to be short this morning knowing we've had a lot going on this morning. Uh, I make a promise, a covenant with you that I will keep it shorter than normal. Amen. Or not. I mean, if you want me to just preach on, that's, that's fine too. You watched a three-hour football game yesterday, right? So anyway, so let me give you fly, the flyover. If you're a new guest to this series, what I'm trying to do is I'm, we're kind of doing a survey of the book real quickly, like a three or four minutes fly over the island, and then we're going to land right in the middle of the text because I think we get the most meat out of the middle of a text. And so the flyover of the book of Amos is really simple. He was one of the two prophets of the northern kingdom of Israel, roughly around 760 B.C., about 40 years prior to the northern kingdom of Israel being run, run, in, run over by Assyria. Now, if you don't know a lot about Old Testament Bible history, 930 B.C., uh, a significant event happened. Israel, the northern ten tribes, and Judah, the southern ten tribes, they split. And you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, okay? And both of these lines have mostly bad moments. Like, it's, it's not a whole lot of good. It could get better, going to get worse kind of thing. Pretty much the entire line, Israel was quicker to its demise in the northern kingdom, okay? And so by 722, 721 B.C., Assyria has come in and conquered. This is about 40 years prior to that in, in this book. Uh, Amos is a prophet to Israel during a very similar situation as the book of uh, Hosea uh, earlier, during Jeroboam II, okay? Really bad king, really bad king, okay? Not a lot of good that he did. Now, militarily he looked good, politically he looked good, but when it came to his obedience to God, not a lot of good stuff happened there, okay? He was a shepherd, all right? It's amazing how many shepherds we find in the Bible. And he was a fig tree farmer. If you like fig newtons, hey, you like this guy, okay? Fig tree farmer from a place called Tekoa, which actually was barely in the nation of Judah. And then he would travel up to the nation of Israel to preach, okay? And this is a book of collections. Now, I, I misspelled a word here. Uh, uh, oof sermons, not oof sermons, of sermons, all right? This is not German, all right? Of sermons, poems, and visions that emphasize this relationship between God's justice and his mercy. And like a lot of these books, they, they highlight God's mercy and his justice, impending doom coming, all right? And it seems to be like the same message over and over. So we're going to take a little bit different angle at this this morning in the book of Amos, and I'll show you that in just a minute. Now, it's interesting as you look in the book, there is an interesting way the book begins. Again, if, if Amos is a prophet to Israel, you would think his sermons, his writings and stuff would be to Israel, but he doesn't begin with Israel, okay? He actually begins, if you look at, at Amos chapter 1 and chapter 2, with all the people groups around Israel, okay? 
He begins to prophesy judgment upon all the groups of people that are connected to Israel. And he begins to zoom in closer and closer and closer to Israel. By the time you get halfway through chapter 2 of Amos, then he's going to unleash on Israel. It's almost like he had to warm up a little bit. Like yesterday, your favorite college football team may not have come out real sharp, right? They may have had one or two drives where they had knocked the rust off a little bit. It's almost like Amos has to knock a little bit of rust off and get warmed up before he gets to Israel. And then he just... I'm telling you, talk about a hellfire brimstone kind of preacher. He's a doomsday prophet. He lets them have it, right? But he has to kind of zoom in around and then land the plane and then lay in to Israel. Okay, so it's kind of unique in that text. Now, I think that does do something really significant to us that we're going to get to in just a minute, okay? I want to jump into uh, real quickly to this, this, this uh, quote I found. And this is really the nation of Israel in relation to these other people groups, Okay. Nation of Israel is God's chosen people. Amen? In the, in the book of Genesis, we see the story of God's mercy and grace played out between Genesis chapter 3, which is the fall of man, and Genesis chapter 12. Okay? There's good, there's bad, and there's ugly. There's moments where there's some good moments. You think about Noah, right? And then in Genesis chapter 12, God begins to enact this beautiful redemptive story. And he begins with a guy named Abram. You ever heard of Abram before? Shake your head. Abram, right? He begins to give a promise to Abram. And the promise in Genesis chapter 12 is that God would use his seed or his family, his line, to make a great nation. Now listen very carefully. And then all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. Y'all with me, right? So there's immediate blessing that he's going to build a nation out of Abram. By the way, he was really old, right? Still didn't have a kid. Finally, his wife had a kid. Very old. You're like talking about if you're grandparents and you're raising kids right now, it's tough, right? Can you imagine Abraham, Sarah, 90 years old, raising, you know, young little kid running around everywhere, right? It's just a little different kind of world, right? And so he, he finally has a kid. And from this small little humble beginning becomes this nation that ultimately our Savior would come out of, okay? And that would be the blessing to the rest of the world. The Bible Project makes this, this great uh, equation. Great calling plus great responsibility equals great consequences. I think the reason why the book of Amos, we're going to fly around real quick, is that it begins with these other, other messages to other people groups. It's because it was supposed to be Israel's responsibility to show light in the midst of darkness to the other nations. And Israel missed it. Missed it all together. I think we too have the same responsibility as, born again, Christians today. The church today should be distinctly different in our culture. Amen? You wonder today, and I'm going to veer off for just a second. Uh, I've been burdened lately about our culture. And this week, it kind of hit, uh, the last few days of the week, kind of hit me real hard. I'm watching a football game yesterday, and there's a commercial about a movie that came on. And it was just completely blatantly evil, Okay. And it's, it's pushing an agenda that is not biblical whatsoever. At the same time, we have another local church. I will not say out from the pulpit which church that is, who's literally endorsing biblical LGBTQ. Endorsing that. And I'm, I'm in, my, in my heart, I'm like broken. I'm like, how are we going to fix the world? How are we going to shed light in the world? How are we going to be instruments of the gospel when we are compromising on all the fronts? You, you see it? You know whose responsibility it is to shine in the darkness today? It's, Israel was God's people in the Old Testament and still is. But it is the church, the born-again believers, who are supposed to be light in the darkness today. Luke chapter 12, verse 48. 
Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom, from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. I, I, love, uh, I love superhero movies. You remember the old Spider-Man? Uncle Ben tells young Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. By the way, it actually was an ancient Proverbs. It was borrowed, all right? That's the idea. What, what great power is the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so there is responsibility that we have as the church, much like Israel had in its day, to the truth of God and his word and his economy of obedience. And if you disobey, there's justice and judgment. First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 24 says, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among all the peoples. Oswald Smith says of the church, the first work of the whole church is to give the whole gospel to the whole world. Isn't that good? Y'all are, y'all are dead with me this morning, okay? The first work of the whole church is to give the whole gospel to the whole world. And it's only the gospel that changes the culture, by the way. Let's go on. I want to look at Amos chapter 5. If you have your Bible, Amos chapter 5, verse 10 and following. Woo, I'm going to have to be fast today. It's 11.53. I shouldn't even say that out loud because y'all are going to all look at your watches right now. Okay. Verse 10. They hate him. Woo. Now he's going to talk about Israel. He's talking about the culture. And they talk, he's talking about truth. Israel, the culture, the wicked culture of Israel's day. Hate him who reproves in the gate. And they abhor him who speaks the truth. Now read these words. I think of, uh, of a culture that's run amok, much like the book of Judges where it's reverse morality, where good is bad and bad is good, right? People absolutely hate the truth of God's word. I feel like we live in the same culture today. Would you agree? We live in a godless culture where people hate truth. People wonder, have you ever had a conversation, well, how do we get this bad so fast over the last several years? How did, our, how did the American culture disintegrate so quickly? And I got to say, it's actually been boiling for the last two decades, okay? You ever heard of, of postmodernism, right? Postmodernism basically is this, that we want to erode any idea of absolute truth. We didn't think that would be a big, you know, in our culture, like that's not going to be a big thing. But what the big thing is, is, if you take away absolute truth, you also take away absolute standards of morality, Right? You with me? When you take away absolute truths, you take away absolute standards of morality, and therefore anything goes that you want to go. Amen? Right? Is that not where we have today? Number one, in your worship God. If you have a worship God, fill this blank in. I'll be quick. Bad theology always leads to bad morality. Always. The wrong view of God produces a false barometer of good every time. Think about it. Bad theology always leads to bad morality. A view that if God is not consistent with his word will lead to all kinds of terrible behaviors. Romans chapter 1. I got to read these words. You can hang it there. For the wrath of God is revealed, Paul says, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. The truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. God's word, the scripture says, is truth. You suppress that truth. And who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has even shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have, have been made. So they are without excuse. So God let a te- left a testimony in creation even. For although they knew God, they did not honor God. That's God. See, demoting God, false view of God, or give thanks to him. But they came, became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise. Don't we live in some of the most supposedly wise day of our, of our, of our existence? As human? I mean, like, we're so smart, we think. And I have found that we're so smart, we're dumb. Amen? We are de-evolving. Amen? They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Therefore, as a result of their wrong view of God, bad theology, bad doctrine, guess what happened? Bad morality. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, this honoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. You know, an evil culture doesn't like truth. Evil culture will push back to any absolute standards of truth. And as a result of that, an evil culture will, culture will continue to do evil. Church, listen to me carefully. We cannot compromise when it comes to the truth of God's word. We dare not compromise. While other churches who claim the name of Jesus Christ, gather to worship and compromise the scriptures. We cannot compromise. Call us bigots. Call us, call us radical. Call us old fogey. Call us whatever. But listen carefully. I'd rather be called that by the world than unfaithful by God. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. What we think is that we have to compromise in order to attract the world. You ever heard of the attractional model of church the last two decades? We've been pushing it, pushing it, seeker-sensitive at all, get out. Maybe the world will come to us if we'll just be a little bit like the world. It does not work, church. And the bride of Christ is stained as a result of that. Read on verse 11, Amos 5. Therefore... Because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes. Here's the injustice of Amos' day in Israel. From grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. What he's talking about is his coming judgment of Assyria on Israel. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions. Oh, this is hurtful. I know your sin, God says. I know your transgressions and how great are your sins who afflict the righteous who take a bribe and you turn aside needy in the gate. Number two, quickly, God's omniscience, meaning that God is all-knowing, should be a prevention uh, to our sin. Let me tell you something. This is, this is frightening to me. There is nothing that is ever hidden from God's sight. Nothing. I don't care how hard we try to cover it up. I don't care how much lipstick we put on a pig. I don't care how much we try to justify our sin. There is nothing that God cannot see, and there's nothing that God cannot know. Teenagers, those evil little lustful thoughts in your head. Men, those evil little lustful thoughts in your head. Ladies, that, that, that desire and jealousy inside of you. God hears the gossip. God hears the bad words. God hears the anger. 
God sees us in our small, little deviances. Nothing is hidden from the sight of God. And that should terrify us. Does it terrify you? It terrifies me. Like, I can't get away with nothing because God is all-knowing. We're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch over on the evil and the good. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13 talks about God's word. In the sense, the word of God is living and active. It's sharpening a two-edged sword, piercing the vision of soul and the spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Uh Uh-oh. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are, we'll say this word southern, naked, and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Psalm 139 verse 1 says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. Isn't that terrifying? I'm I'm telling you, think about that to the fullest extent. God sees it. And, And to Israel, he says, I see your sin. I know your transgressions. And you can't cover it up. My friend, listen to me very carefully. You can't cover up your sin. You can't make your sin look better. You can't justify your sin to a holy God. And your sin separates you from a holy God. No matter what you want to call it, in this world we call it, it's my lifestyle. It's It's my decision. But if that lifestyle contradicts God's word, it is sin. It doesn't make me hateful. I tell you, there's not a person out there that the Bible has not commanded me to love, and I'm going to love them like crazy. But just because I love somebody doesn't mean I have to condone their sin. Amen? We've missed that in our culture. Verse 13. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Amos says, you know what? Sometimes the best solution, Israel, is just a hush. Excuse me for saying, just shut up. Some of us have a problem with that. I like to put my foot in my mouth a lot. Anybody with me? Y'all can raise your Baptist hand if you want to, right? Right? I, I keep my foot in my mouth, and I, my mouth and I chew on my leather all the time because I'm just a talker. I'm a preacher. That's what you, that's what we talk, right? But sometimes we've got to be quiet, especially when the days are as deviant as they are. Second Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes to Timothy, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Uh Uh-huh, kids, Mm -hmm. right? Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure than lovers of God. Does that not sound like our culture? Does it not sound like America? Ephesians chapter 5, Paul would write, look carefully then as you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Your, your translation may say, redeeming the time because the days are evil. So he says, be quiet, don't add to it, Israel, Christian. For, verse 14, Amos chapter 5, seek good, not evil, that you may live. Seek good and not evil so that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 19 echoes that truth. That's where we're pulling from. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and a curse. Therefore, choose life. He says, seek good, not evil, that you may live. John 10, 10, I remind you, how do we seek life today? Jesus says you seek truth today. 
John 10, 10 says, a thief comes always to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Did you know there's a difference between existing and living? A lot of people, well, we're breathing, right? Hopefully you're breathing. And the preacher hadn't put you to sleep too much already, right? You'll wake up with me. You're breathing, you're living, right? You're existing. At a certain level, you got a pulse, you're existing. But I don't think God made us just to exist. I think he made us to live. And how do we live? We live in a relationship with God who is life. We live in a relationship with Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life, right? That's abundant living. There's a lot of things to be said about me when I die one day. <laughs> Please be nice if I ever die. Well, when I die, I'll die one day, right? If it's, probably, if it's soon, if I go missing, I always kid around this. If I, go, if I go missing, my life insurance policy is pretty good. Kim probably did it, all right? Let her collect the money, all right? That's on record. Now, I said that. They're going to come after you now, okay, if I ever go missing. No, she don't care, all right? There's a lot of things that can be said about me when I die. Listen carefully. But if you say he was alive, I'm good with that. He, he, was, a, he was a live wire. Well, praise God. Because as a born-again Christian, I shouldn't act dead. Amen? The light of Jesus Christ inside of me. Verse 15, hate evil. Do good. Amos chapter 5. And establish justice in the gate. Proverbs 2, verse 8, verse 13 says, The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. He said, hate evil. It's okay, Christian, to look in the evil in our world and say, I hate evil. Not hate somebody, but to hate evil. And love good. And establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And by the way, God would be gracious to the remnant of Joseph because we're on this side of the gospel narrative of Jesus Christ. And so there is God's mercy and his grace poured out to the nation of Israel and to the world. Verse 16, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord. In all the squares, there shall be a wailing, and in the streets, they shall say, alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning and the wailing to those who are skilled in lamentation. Again, we're predicting the fall of Israel by Assyria. Judgment is on the horizon. In all vineyards, there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord, and God's going to get evil good. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. We talked about this last week. The day of the Lord is this, a very significant terminology used in the Old Testament and in reference in the New Testament as well. The day of the Lord is the day of God's judgment. It's the near day of the Lord. For Israel, it was Assyria at 722, 721. In Judah, it was 586, 587 when Babylon comes in. It was a day of God's judgment. I got to tell you, for America, September 11th was a day of the Lord's judgment. Okay? Let's just be honest. But it was not the day, ultimate day of the Lord's judgment. That's to be determined right? So when God moves and his mercy to redeem those who have trusted, them, trusted him in the midst of wickedness, but he also moves with judgment upon the unredeemed, that's the day of the Lord. So we can refer back to, why would, you have, why would you have the day of the Lord? Darkness and not light. Number three, we need a healthy perspective of the imminent day of the Lord. The last one, book of Revelation, end times. It should bring us joy on one hand, but mourning on the other. Well, Christian, listen carefully. If you are a born-again believer and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you repent of your sin, and you have a relationship with God through Jesus, listen, you should be joyful looking towards the future. Death is not the worst thing for you. Amen? Death is not the worst thing. The worst thing is death without Christ. When you, we look forward to the return of Christ or our death, 
the day of the Lord when revelations comes and all that stuff comes. You know what? For us, it will be the realization of our salvation. We can hoop and holler like Pentecostals on that day, okay? I give you full permission as a Baptist minister to hoop and holler like a Pentecostal when it's that day, okay? Because I'll be, I'll be doing that, okay? I'll even, and I can't dance, I'll even be dancing that day, okay? All right? Amen? We should also grieve as we think about that. Because there will be many people who won't be hooping and hollering in joy. They'll be hooping and hollering in judgment. It should also lead to mourning. And that should urge us with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hope for the nations, church. Verse 19, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear meet him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? You know the answer? The gospel. Bring the gospel to the world so the day of the Lord does not meet people unaware of God's mercy and grace. Verse 21, I hate, I despise your feast, God says. Ooh, let's get serious now. Let's talk about worship for a minute. He said, I despise your feasts, your religious activities. I take no delight in your solemn assembly. What if God said that to the American church? I take no delight when you gather together with your church. Why would God say that? Because you are gathering in fallacy. You are gathering in sin and you are gathering in compromise. Now I'm going to start preaching, okay? And God says, I take no delight in that. Israel, like this is like, this is what Israel does. They are very religious people. This is how they show their worship of God. They gather at these feasts, these assemblies. He says, even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. And the peace offerings of your fat animals, I will not look upon them. Because God's making a very clear point. Worship is not about outward expression. It is about the loyalty of your heart, church. Number four, <laughs> let's just, Jason, let's land this one. This will be fun. The quality of worship has nothing to do with the condition of the song. Well, I don't like that song. It's not my favorite. It's not my jam. I like it. I, I like it this style. I like it this style. Man, those drums are real loud. Man, that guitar up there, I just don't know. I, wanna, I want this and I want that. And I want this. This is what I like. I, 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 I. When was worship about me? It's not about the condition of the pulpit. I don't like that preacher. Mm. Sometimes I look at me, I don't like the preacher. Amen? He preaches way too long. Way too long. Y'all, he wears jeans. I don't like the pulpit. I don't like the condition of the preacher. It's not even about the structure. It's not about how we do this. It's not even the buildings. It's not about that. It has everything to do with the condition of our heart. Have you ever wondered why when we gather sometimes for corporate worship, that it feels like, like it's just kind of uh, meh. Is it possible it's meh because our heart's not in it? You cannot expect on Sunday morning to come in for one hour and one hour of corporate worship to fix six and a half days of disobedience and sin to God. It does not work that way. This is not your shot of righteousness. Jesus in John 4 told the woman, well, the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Amen. 
Amos 5, verse 23. God says, Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. So what really God wants is our holy hearts. Number five. We worship God in holiness. We don't really worship God at all. Preacher, what do you mean by that? When I have a high view of God, that God is holy, means set apart, different. Not just he's morally pure, but he's not like me. Here is God. I'm not even in the same scale. I'm, I'm like, I can't be any on the, on, the, on the Richter scale at this point. Here's God. Here's me. And, and I have to worship God like this, not like this. A lot of times when we come to worship, and then we're talking about corporate worship for a minute, we come to worship and we make it so horizontal that we want to talk about God like God is our best friend, like he's my BFF. Let me tell you something. God is a friend, but he ain't like my BFF. He is so much holier than that. And he demands all my reverence and all my fear and all my awe and all my obedience, right? It ain't about me. It's about God. It's about his holiness. And as a result of that, Leviticus tells us this. If God is holy, guess what he expects of his people? That we also approach him and worship in holiness. There's a lot of things that the modern church does when worship that is not holy. Let's just be real. And I ain't picking on other churches. I'm just going to, let's be real. We worship God in holiness. We don't worship him at all. Psalm 29, verse 2. Ascribe the Lord the glory to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Psalms 96, verse 9 says the same thing. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. 1 Chronicles 16, verse 29. Ascribe the Lord the glory to his name. Same thing. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. You, you kind of get the drift. It's kind of repeated over and over and over in the Old Testament. How do we worship God? In holiness. Stephen Sharnock said this, power is God's hand or arm, omniscience is God's eye, mercy is God's light, eternity is God's duration, but holiness is God's beauty. I thank God when we worship, either personal or corporately, we do not worship one like us, we worship one who is way above and beyond us. Amen? Otherwise, why would we worship? He ain't like you. He ain't like me. Verse 24, Amos chapter 5. It's probably the most famous verse in the book of Amos. Not too many sermons out of Amos, right? Here you go. Amos chapter 5, verse 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Again, Amos does a great job of showing the balance of mercy and justice and then the absolute necessity of both mercy and justice. Number six, the holiness of God demands judgment of sin. That's a no-brainer. We look at the minor prophets. This is the message of the minor prophets. God is holy, and therefore he will not allow sin to go unpunished or be atoned for. Somebody got to pay. You remember that? You ever watched, uh, uh, what's, what's the name of the movie? It's uh, the Treasure Hunt movie. What is it? National Treasure. Thank you, Kim. She, she can read my mind. Scary, isn't it, right, guys? National Treasure. One of the main characters says, somebody's got to go to prison, Ben. Somebody's got to go to prison. Somebody got to pay for sin, y'all. Somebody got to pay for sin. The holiness of God demands judgment of sin. Now, number seven, last. I want to point out the attribute of God. Now, we've talked about uh, God's his mercy, his justice, 
to, to a certain extent. So I want to take it a different way. I want to come back to the fact that God knows all our sins. So number, number seven is this. God is omniscient. And I want to find God's omniscience is this. God has perfect knowledge of all things. And he is the ultimate criteria or criterion of both truth and falsity. Right? God is the standard of truth. And he knows all things. Why is that significant in the minor prophets? Because no sin could be hidden from God. Why is that significant in the New Testament? Because no sin can be hidden from God. God sees you where you're at. And listen, this is, what's, this is the gospel. This is what's glorious about it. God sees us where we're at. And, and God has a promise for us that, that there is doom coming. There's judgment for that sin. But then he, on the other side, offers mercy and grace to forgive us from that sin. Right? It's not that God says, you know what, I choose to look the other way in your sin. I just, I don't want to see it. I don't care about it. And ignorance is bliss. God says, no, I know. But I still choose to redeem you, to offer salvation. So you see the beauty of omnipotence, omniscience. All the, all the omnis, by the way, they're all, all part of that together. John 8, 32, and you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. God knows that truth and the truth and gospel. God will set us free. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. I'm almost there. Hang in there. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Jeremiah 23, 24. Can a man hide himself in secret places that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Romans chapter 11, verse 33 and following says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. You know what God's omniscience says? That God doesn't need to learn anything. I always think, I always just express this, this, this truth. Leaders are learners. I like to, to read. I like to learn. From the moment we're born, the moment we die, we should never stop learning, right? Amen, right? No matter how old you are, you should be learning something all the time, right? Have you ever thought about this? God doesn't need to learn anything. Nothing. God never has to pull up YouTube and figure out how to fix something in his truck or car. We all do it, right? God, God doesn't have to read uh, uh, how to put a piece of furniture together. God knows all things. T- to me, that excites me because that means there's nothing that takes God by surprise, right? A.W. Tozer said it this way. To say that God is omniscient is to say that he possesses perfect knowledge and therefore has no need to learn. But it's more. It is to say that God has never learned and he cannot learn because he's God. Now, why, why would we point out these truths about God in the series? Because I, I, I believe this. I think a high view of God gives us a better view of our sin. You with me? A high view of God gives us a clear understanding of our sin and the absolute need to repent of our sin and turn to Christ. Amen? The most dangerous thing we could do as people is to try to bring God down to us and elevate ourselves up closer to him. You with me, church? Because what that does is makes me almost a co-equal with God. And I can make this religious Christianity thing about me and what I like, what I prefer. The rules I want to keep and the rules I don't want to keep. I can make the standards of God, well... I know that the Bible says that's wrong, but I know people who do that. And so because I have a face with a name, therefore, maybe it's not so wrong. You see that? You see it? But when I see God this, 
And I see my sin this. I see the holiness and perfection of God. I realize that I'm not that, and I need God. That's my hope for us. If anything you get out of today's message in this series, you get a big, robust view of God and a really small view of your sin. You realize, you know what? It ain't worth it. I choose Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord God, I thank you, Lord, for the book of Amos, a very unique book, as all these minor prophets are. Lord, I thank you right in the middle of this book, you declare that you know everything. So search us heart, our heart, God, right now. By your spirit, move us to repentance. Lord, do what only you can do. I thank you for your word. Change us, Lord, as a result of your word. If there's anyone here who's never repented their sin, turn to Christ for their salvation. Lord, today, let it be a day of salvation. Build your kingdom, build your church, do what only you can do. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me?